Podcast name played nobody. My name is Stephen Godfrey. You can reach me at 38Godfrey on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, today, we're going nothing but little ESD, early signing day. I don't know if it is quite yet in the uh, vernacular enough to just to say ESD. Uh, we'll work on that. But Bud Elliott is joining me. Bud, where can everyone find you on the internet? Uh, on Twitter at Bud Elliott 3 of course, at Banner Society. Uh, com. Also on the Banner Society Read Option newsletter, just click up at the top there on BannerSociety.com and click Read Option. That's our free uh, daily newsletter, or mostly daily. I mean, in the offseason, maybe three or four times, but pretty solid there. Um, yeah, those are the main spots. And, of course, on, on Podcast Ain't Played Nobody, download, subscribe, and like, and rate, and review us. All right, bud. I, the goal here today is not to alienate anyone who looks at recruiting as either not applicable to their fandom or... Uh, just feels like it's too dense. It's too hard to get into. It's too specific. So uh, we're gonna go. We're gonna go very uh, intro course one hundred and one level first, and we're gonna kind of move out from there. And specifically, this is an early signing day show, so let's start with that because we aren't gonna talk about so much what will be in February. We don't really know what's gonna be in February. We'll also get to the coaching impacts and how this impacts coaching because um, as we're learning with these split signing days college football looks very different after one and then staffs change and all that stuff. So, all right, let's start at the very top. Can, in the simplest way, can you explain early signing day as it relates to national signing day in February? Sure. So this is now the third time we have had an early signing day. It's actually an early signing period, but almost all of it happens uh, during the early signing day, which is Wednesday uh, and it extends through Friday. So essentially kids who have their minds made up and, and most of them seem to have their mind made up by this point in the year. Have a chance to, to get signing day done, get it out of the way, know where they're going, get it locked in, enjoy their their holiday season, and uh, and a, a lot of them seem to like it. But uh, there are we're seeing an increasing number every year of kids who are, are signing early. I think first year we had like sixty something percent. Last year we were over seventy. This year I think we'll be close to eighty. Um, and so this is really the new signing day. The second signing day is kind of your like remainder signing day. It, it, they're, they're not equal. This is so much more important than the, than the, uh, the later one. Are you, let's start right there because we thought early signing day, it's, it's initial intent. I thought was, was pretty noble for the most part. You had kids who were going through the recruiting process and essentially just, just bottoming out on the excessive contact and the entire culture of it, of just being pestered and, you know, uh, giving a an actual solid verbal commitment to a school and then still being recruited by the rivals. And then you'd have flip miss and you'd have all these other cultures where kids who had been committed for so long, suddenly something happens at the 11th hour, they switch over. This early signing day was designed to say, hey, if you're if you're locked in and you know what you want to do, this is the opportunity to sign the paper and move on and not have to deal with that 90 day stretch of, of pure madness, right? But yet the number keeps going up. That doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is figuring out where they want to go right away, does it? No, definitely not. I mean, a lot of these kids are, are pressured in, into signing early. Uh, they're they're told, hey, if you know if you don't sign early, you're not really committed to us. That these coaches don't want them to go take other visits, and uh, in some cases, that if they don't want to sign early, the school will simply give their spot uh, to someone else. I mean, it, it's a leverage play and. For these kids, it's always the first time they're going through the process. The coaches now have been through the process many times. So they, they have the uh, experience edge here. And it, in a lot of ways, I, I think early signing period is kind of bad for the kids. But um, it 
is growing in popularity every year. So wait, why is it we just got done saying, hey, this was supposed to be the safety valve option for that kid who knew where they wanted to go and wanted to get out of the cycle. Is it bad because they're being pressured to do it early and it's limiting their range of options and the extra time they could have to see other campuses? Correct. Especially because you have all these schools that have that have changed coaches as well. And in some cases, one of those schools might be the better option for the player, um, but he may not have time to go to go visit that school and check them out. Uh, basically, it just it's compressing the amount of time uh, players have to go see schools. And, and you can say, hey, they can go see schools over the summer or in the spring. And that's true. But with, with so much turnover in the coaching ranks uh, on a yearly basis, what you're seeing in, in the spring and summer might not be the same thing that you see uh, come come December. And so, like if you're if you're a kid playing in some of these state playoff games, uh, I mean, I think Texas still has another playoff game next weekend. Florida just decided it, it's playoff games uh, on Friday and Saturday. Like this is you don't have a whole lot of time now to do this. And if you're a kid who you think you might be out leveraged, and they're telling you, hey, either you sign or we're moving on to somebody else, um, that that coach that. A lot of these coaches have said this prior. It's, hey, if you're committed to us verbally and you don't sign, we, we consider you uncommitted. Mm-hmm. And they, they act upon that for the most part. Okay, so if I'm a five-star, instead of having this as an option, if I'm very committed to school X, what is actually happening now is the timetable is being pushed up because the, the schools, even if I'm super committed to school X, but I kind of want to see where it goes. So what we're seeing is just sort of behind-the-scenes pressure on the kids. How many... Uh, is it possible to maintain a good relationship with a school and and look them in the eye bud and just say, hey, I'm actually going to wait until February. I'm going to wait until, what is it, you know, February 6th or 5th or whatever. This is all about how much leverage you have. It, in your example, if you're a five-star, certainly. I mean, there's only, what, 35 stars on, in a given year? Right. Five stars are, are such a such a small fraction of all your FBS recruits out there. Pretty much any school in the country, if a five-star tells them, hey, I still like you guys, but I do want to check out some more options. Hopefully, you'll hold my spot come February. They're going to do that. If you're like the 10th best player in their class, they're probably going to have some other options, which in their in their eyes are somewhat similar to you talent-wise, and they know they can go get, and they'd rather have that certainty so they can be done with, with, with this 2020 class and get moving on 2021 and really start hosting these junior days, start start recruiting the kids for the next cycle. You know that, That's the thing. If you have most of your class done and then in the barn, you're, you're done with it. You can go and, and start recruiting. You can host these junior days in January for next year's elite crop, and you can get a head start on that. Whereas if you're still doing a lot of work or trying to do a lot of work uh, come February, you're behind the eight ball. So the average three-star kid, that's the one who's really getting pinched here. Correct. Gotcha. All right. Here's what we're going to do, bud. We're going to run down the top 10, and I'm going to list them first, uh, number one to number 10, and then we're going to go back through and kind of talk about them a little bit. I would just say at first glance, you should not be shocked by any name on this list. So I'll do this from top to bottom. Clemson, number two, Alabama, LSU, Ohio State, Texas A&M, Georgia, Texas, Florida, Oklahoma, and Auburn. So no shock there. A bunch of blue bloods, a bunch of established names and brands. Uh, let's go back up to Clemson. Uh, in a in a sentence, is it just the same as it ever has been under Dabo now, which is just the, this insane standard of just ridiculous star quality? No, they, they've actually taken it up a level. Uh, Wait, sure. what? Yeah, really. Uh, okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, they, they used for, for to those of much... us who don't follow the star tracking. What? How, how in the world could he take it up a level? So they're they're now entering that uh, Alabama Ohio State um, 
kind of kind of sphere there, right? Um, Clemson is very much known for really caring about character and and fit, and they will pass on some kids to take a slightly lesser rated kid if they feel that maybe you know this kid's not not the right fit. So in years past, they have taken you know, more three star types, I think, than your average national championship team uh, would normally take. But they real in a lot of times they've hit on those. They've done a great job. I think what you're seeing this year is that the kids that fit Clemson's system in terms of like the number of elite kids who also have awesome character and and that type of stuff and and fit, Clemson is able to get more of them because it's won two out of the last three uh, national titles. And so it's not having to dip quite as far down in the talent ranks to get the guys that fit their culture. Uh, To me, like like if Clemson wants a five-star, in my head, I'm kind of like, damn, okay. Like that, that kid's really, I mean, probably really has some of the intangibles too. Whereas some of these other schools, I'm not sure, are quite as good at that. Clemson, I, I think, has earned the benefit of the doubt with what they do under Dabo. And, and this class will help them secure the ACC uh, for, for probably the next three or four years, I would say. So for all the disingenuous stuff that we're easily able to identify when Dabo talks to the media and some of the you know overly branded branding nonsense talk, there is some legitimacy to the character recruiting thing? No doubt. Yeah, there, there are certain kids that I know for a fact they just won't take. And they're talented kids. Sometimes they're talented in-state kids. And I'm not saying that Clemson will never take a knucklehead, okay? But they do do a really good job of balancing it out. And I think this bears out, by the way, in terms of a lot of their off-field stuff. How many Clemson kids do you see get in trouble? Yeah. They're they're not all over the police blotter. All right, let's go to number two, Alabama. And they also have a really – can I say one more thing yeah, here? Yeah, go ahead. Does Clemson, do you have a more collegiate feel than some of the other programs we're about to talk about? Like, it seems like their guys are – like they really do, they love Clemson. Like they seem like in some ways they're almost more college student-y as opposed to like NFL factory, you know, machine type type element of it. I think that that plays well with some of your character kids. Well, just just to run down some of the names real quick, it, it's a smaller campus than a lot of these places. First off, it's in a it's in a rural area. It is a traditional ag and engineering school. So if you've ever been to Clemson, it's not it's not a place you fly into, so to speak. Okay, so I think that all of that helps. Um, you know, obviously, the campus culture, Auburn being down at number 10, you know, we make jokes all the time. Clemson with a lake, Clemson without a lake. Um, yeah, I could see that. I I, I, I can kind of get that. I mean, Athens has Athens, Georgia's on the list. Uh, Baton Rouge is major city, state capital. Obviously, Columbus, same situation. Austin, Texas. Gainesville's more collegiate. But yeah, I could see that. I also still think it's it's a little bit new in the NFL concept. While they are stocking the NFL with players, no doubt. Um you know, maybe that vibe hasn't caught up with them yet. I think that's true. Okay. Uh, so tell me, there's no reason to believe Alabama's dynasty is dead by any stretch. Not really. I mean, I, their their gap in terms of what they do recruiting-wise and the rest of the nation has narrowed quite a bit. I mean, it used to be that they were just crushing everybody. I mean, they, they were number one with a bullet. They're, they're still recruiting at a really elite level, uh, but other teams have, have narrowed the gap some, right? But what do you they still have uh, Nick Saban? They still have. What I'm sorry? would you? No, just to stop you there. What's the cause of that? Because that's that's music to a lot of people's ears, and the fatigue that Alabama created, both on the field but also in recruiting, immediately after the end of the season, was just. You know, I think it numbed a lot of college football fans, especially casual fans, that this this one brand was so dominant. So, what closed that gap specifically? A couple things. Uh, number one, coaching turnover. At Bama, they just had so many guys in and out of there. Right. It's hard to maintain these multi-year relationships with kids when you constantly have players, or excuse me, constantly have coaches in and out of your program. Point number two, which is very much related to that, 
uh, Kirby and and Pruitt taking guys off Bama's staff. I mean, they, they're literally the cause of a lot of that coaching turnover. I mean, look how many guys came from Bama uh, on on some of those early staffs, and they also understand the Saban blueprint for recruiting. I mean, they obviously use it to, to, to varying levels of effectiveness. Georgia is killing it. Tennessee's doing a nice job. They're not, you know, killing it to the same level, mm-hmm. obviously. But that that really hurts them. I also think Clemson having the, the the coordinator and staff continuity that they have, and being able to contrast that to what you know, Alabama has is is effective. And then this year specifically, I mean, you have uh, AM and LSU are not really messing around in the West. Ohio State has, I think, figured out some of those tactics as well, and they're really doing a nice job. I mean, they're they're blowing away away the rest of the Big Ten. In recruiting yet again, um, so some of those tactics I think have, have spread, and schools are really spending. It's no longer Alabama has sixty polo shirts that are not coaches and, and not trainers and not not strength staff, and nobody else has anything close to that. A lot of schools now have really big sports staffs. Uh, let's go to LSU. Um, LSU has been notable for the last couple of years for um, doing what I think maybe the novice wouldn't expect. When you look at LSU, you see a really talented state in Louisiana that's designed in every way, shape, and form to benefit LSU in terms of everything, state budget, funding, academics, you know, all that, and especially football recruiting. But yet, LSU, we've seen uh, more and more, they are going out of Louisiana to secure big-time talent. Yeah, and I I think that they correctly realized that the state of Louisiana this year was not as good talent-wise as it has been in the previous two years. And I'll I'll read you off the hometowns of, of, of these kids. Yeah. Okay. Or the home states. Georgia, Cali, D.C., Louisiana, Louisiana, Cali, Virginia, Maryland, Georgia, Maryland, Houston, which, I mean, is kind of like an extended version of of Louisiana. And they do have a lot of Louisiana in the class, sort of in in, in the bottom half. They went to Georgia to get their quarterback and back to Texas there. They they dipped into Alabama. But, like, the top half of their class is mostly out-of-state kids, including some kids from you know, from Cali and Washington, D.C. and Virginia, uh, which is places they usually don't go. That makes sense. Obviously, Houston makes the most sense. But I had someone at LSU tell me recently that, you know, post-Katrina, the state of Louisiana migrated out. They migrated into other parts of the United States. And it wasn't just Texas. It wasn't just Atlanta. It was all over. And accordingly, that brand that, you know, LSU went with them in a, in a certain way. And I think it's easier than ever for LSU to recruit like a national brand. We've just... Never really seen that before. I think maybe had Saban stayed there, you would have seen more of an approach like that. But they have become more of a instantly recognizable logo um, than they ever have been in the last couple of years. So um, it'll be interesting to see how far they take it. Speaking about the, about their, their Cali kids, one of their Cali kids, I'm not going to say who because this was just us chatting. Uh, and I don't, don't want to dime him out. You know, I was like, so, I mean, how do you know about LSU? And he was basically like, you know, I I know some about them. Uh, and I was like, because this was back when, when USC wasn't doing real well over the summer. And he's like, look, man, you want to play for it all. Like, like you want to play with, with with the big time. You you can't do it at USC. And I was like, oh, God. Okay. So if you, if you can't do it at USC and you're a four or five star type, uh, yeah. rest of the Pac-12. Uh, we're going to talk yeah. to you. We're going to talk about the Trojans in just a second because uh, that effect, I think, is going to be felt across the country for better or worse, depending on who you are. Um, I'd also point out real fast to echo that recruit statement. We have four playoff teams currently, but as we record this, all four show up in the top 10. Pretty easy to identify. Number one, Clemson. Number three, LSU. Number four, Ohio State. And then Oklahoma down at nine. So this is, uh, you know, call it a correlation here, folks. 
But uh, Ohio State, there's nothing new that you can really tell me here. Obviously, they are, um, you know, still a national brand, still the football factory of the Big Ten, still absolutely, you know, the best in terms of that region, but then also just as competitive as any of the teams that we just talked about. Yeah, they, they bring in just as much talent as anybody does. Um, this year, four of the top 15 receivers in the country are, are committed to them. Julian Fleming, who a lot of people think is number one. They've got Jackson. They've got G. Scott Jr., uh, Mookie Cooper. I mean, this is a ridiculous class uh, for them, especially with, with, with the offensive weapons that they're going to have. Uh, a lot of guys who are already really good football players and also some, some good projects, so a pretty good balance of, uh, of upside as well as like floor. Uh, one guy I really like, and I know a lot of coaches like, he's – He's rated outside of the top 150, but uh, Court Williams, who's a linebacker out of Bosco and Cali, this dude's really sharp. I think he has great positional versatility. And, and somebody who, I mean, I know he's a, he's kind of lower rated as far as Ohio State's class goes because their class is just that good. But uh, Court Williams can really play. Uh, Texas A&M. Uh, I would just, let me double check. Yeah, of the teams on this list, definitely had the worst year this year on the field. Um, I just saw them play LSU, and it was, you know, kind of a man versus boy situation. The defense especially just looked awful, but they are doing what they hired Jimbo to do, it looks like. They are. Yeah, they're, they're really aggressive in, in recruiting. They're doing a nice job in the state of Texas, but also going outside the state of Texas, going back to Florida, going to Georgia, um, trying to get some kids from, from the Midwest at, at, at times. Uh, they have some chance to move up here because they only have 20 commitments, but at the same time, they also have a chance to move down because some of the schools behind them only have 15 or, or 17 uh, commitments. Um, they do have nine, nine three stars already, but that's fine, I, I think. I mean, Ohio State has nine in their class, uh, but a really nice job. The kid here to, to really focus on is uh, Demond Damas, who I, I think is the best receiver in the nation. I know he's rated like number two or number three uh, at receiver, but that, that kid's just dominant when he's healthy. And uh, I think it's going to be a real difference maker for them on the outside. Okay, so it's funny because you, you bring up DeMoss as a receiver. What I was about to ask you was, because this team has lagged in terms of performance relative to the others, and we'll talk about Texas in a second as well, um, how fast are we going to see this effect take to the field? Because there are a lot of people, I mean, the jokes are already starting, hey, you know, the $75 million man is a 7-5 and five man, all this stuff. But when you look in this world, Fisher and A&M are doing everything they're supposed to. They just haven't won like it yet. Right, so... The thing is, we've already mentioned two teams that are in their division. Right. They have to play right. every year. And we're about to mention another one. Uh, so the schedule certainly gets easier. I don't I don't think they're scheduling Clemson again anytime soon. To me, it'll be about quarterback. Now, they're bringing in Haynes King, who I think is a guy with a lot of potential and upside and one of the top five quarterbacks in the country at, at his position. Uh, they have to block a little bit better. Clearly, Jimbo's scheme asks a lot. Of his offensive line, they, they, they do a whole lot in terms of in terms of scheme wise up front. And if you do it well, that can be awesome. If you don't, then that can be tough. Uh, so they need to block a little bit better. And we have to see. Look, is Kellen Mond gonna? Is it gonna click for him? Right, their numbers this year against the good teams were really really bad until they got to garbage time, and then they they put up a bunch of sort of empty yards. Um, are they going to be better against the best teams? Demos is a guy who I think can play right away. Um, We'll see about Jalen Jones. I, I think he's a guy you, you can plug in, and he can play right away at the safety position. Some of these other dudes, I think, are, are real high upside, and we'll have to see if they can make an early impact. A um, and M. I mean, this combined with the weight of the Fisher expectations, combined with the season they just had, like this is going to be one of the most talked about teams in the entire offseason. Especially when, as we said on the show before, their uh, their schedule is inc- it breaks very friendly early on. So this is a team you could hear a lot about in twenty twenty. Um, but Georgia. 
if you're Georgia right now, you feel like, I mean, you have to feel frustrated because of the talent versus the yield that you're getting on offense. Yet here they are again, and Kirby's doing the Alabama thing. They're recruiting like they did not under Mark Rick. But I don't know, like make me feel better if I'm a Georgia fan. Should still be pretty dominant along the line of scrimmage uh, with, okay. with, with who you're bringing in. I mean, Broderick Jones and Tate Radledge are, are excellent, excellent off the tackle combo. They go into Florida and get the top top defensive lineman or top D tackle in the state in Jalen Carter out of Apopka, which is a school that typically the Gators kill. So, you know, uh, pretty big deal there. They they've got they got one of the top running backs in the state of California and Kendall Milton. They really could close very strong with a couple guys who are still on the board out there. I think they have upward mobility. They also got one of the best offensive linemen in the state of Texas in Chad Lindbergh. They took the kid who I think is probably the best quarterback in the state of Florida again here, Carson Beck. I mean, they're, they're a t- what are they, sixth right now, I, I think, in, in the country, and they only have 15 commitments. I mean, you're looking at 13 out of 15 kids they have right now are, are blue-chip kids. That's ridiculous. So I can't make the knee-jerk reaction and say – the poor offense and the and the scheme that feels kind of luddite is is translating to bad recruiting. People are still signing up to play. Absolutely, they're signing up to play. Yeah, okay. and they they'll still be they'll still be the big favorite again in the SEC East next year. Speaking of last year's Sugar Bowl, uh, okay, so Texas is on this board. This is impressive. One because of the season they've had, and two because of the fact that uh, they just got Chris Ash as we record this. But we don't really know what they're going to be doing in, in a schematic way. Um, from a recruiting standpoint, but are we in any kind of referendum mode yet on Tom Herman, or is it way too early? I, I think if they don't have a nice, a better year in 2020, the 2021 class could could suffer. But right now, their class is still really nice. They're doing a very good job inside the state of Texas. In fact, I think you could argue that they are probably out recruiting A&M within the state of Texas, even though A&M's class is rated higher uh, overall than, than, uh, than they are. And they've been there longer uh, than, than Jimbo has, certainly. So they, they have the year... One year head start, right? I think um, they're still doing a very good job. So it doesn't seem like the guys they lost have really impacted them that much in terms of of, of losing coaches. Bijan Robinson's a really nice running back out of Arizona. They, they got the quarterback they wanted. He's out of Austin, so that helps in, in Hudson Card. Um, I think Vernon Broughton's a guy who you, you don't see a whole lot of his body types in in the Big Twelve, but a, a real like rangy D tackle who, who can make a difference for you there. Mm-hmm. They're trying to beef up more on the defensive line, and, and we'll see how that goes. But this is a nice class, man. Like like after after the year Texas had, in which a lot of the expectations were unjustifiably built up, in my opinion, um, and they failed to meet those expectations. And then they they were like a half game short of what their Vegas thought, thought were right. They should have been like seven and five, eight and four. They go seven and five, but it wasn't like a real impressive seven and five either. They, they had to escape Kansas. They they really weren't that impressive looking. Um, I mean, the second half of the year, they had like no vertical passing explosion at all. Uh, this is a very nice class given their circumstances. You said that 2020's on field result would start to show in recruiting in a potentially negative way. Why not 2019's though? I, I think that they're still able to pitch that this is what we're building. We took a little bit of a step back this year, but uh, you know, we had, we had a lot of injuries and, and I mean, you can talk to an elite player and say, look, man, what happens to your team if you go out, right? Your right. high school team probably sucks. Our same thing here. Now, we're not screwed if we have one guy go down, but we had four and five guys in the secondary go down at times. We had one of our best receivers go down. He was kind of our deep threat. And we had all these things happen to us this year and some bad luck. And, and kids will buy that 
not every single year, but if you do that following a year in which you beat Georgia, a school that is recruiting a lot of these kids anyway, I think that resonates. It's going to be a huge, huge offseason in the state of Texas. Can't wait. Uh, Florida. Okay. Um, of the of the teams on here, Florida and Auburn, obviously just a you know a hair outside of the SEC race, in all honesty. Um, not as good a program in the last couple of years as Georgia. Uh, still upper class SEC, obviously. Still uh, the number two team in the division by far behind Georgia. So that always puts them in a one-game scenario to theoretically make the playoffs. So they're in good shape. Um, I don't want to ask you so much about the dynamic of Florida in the SEC, which is we've talked a lot about that over the years of like, how does Florida adjust expectations relative to Kirby building in Alabama? I think the real story here is the fact that Miami and FSU are in different states of mess right now. They were last year, more or less. They are this year. We've had another coaching change at Florida State. How healthy does this make the Gators just by default? Extremely healthy. I mean, you go back and, and look at some of the teams that have won national titles recently from the state of Florida. You, know, you had uh, Jimbo building it when, uh, when when Miami was screwing around, having Randy Shannon as its coach, and the the very end of the Urban Meyer era slash the beginning of the Muschamp era. Uh, Urban Meyer was able to build his largely on. I mean, Bowden was kind of asleep at the wheel there yeah. for a half decade in Tallahassee. You go back through. It, there are kind of there are moments in time like when Spurrier kind of took their big recruiting downturn. Like right after their title, you thought they would have recruited even better, and they, they sort of didn't. Florida State lost Mark Richt, and then Butch Jones ends up going there and winning a title for Miami um, in, in the very early part of the decade. Right now, I mean, Florida just killed Florida State for the second year in a row. Miami looked like an absolute dumpster fire for a lot of the year on the field, losing a lot of games. It probably should have won. Man, what um, a bizarre team. Yeah, seriously. Uh, like they they are in the catbird seat in terms of the state of Florida recruiting. And if you are, if you are in that, and neither of those other programs get their act together anytime soon, which I don't know if you'd really project them to do so, uh, then you're going to recruit very well. Um, this is a transition. It's unfair, but I'm going to go ahead and make it. Um, you talked about drop-offs, especially like Bowden, for instance, and Spurrier. Um, I think it's unfair to, to compare Bob Stoops to the later years of Bobby Bowden, but your your primary note on Oklahoma right now, sort of the talking point about the Sooners, is that Lincoln Riley has changed and improved, inarguably improved, the recruiting at Oklahoma compared to those those last sort of what, four or five years under Bob Stoops. I'm not saying that I want to be careful here. I don't think Bob Stoops kind of necessarily faded away quite like some of those other, you know, legendary coaches, but there's, there was a noticeable step back. Exactly. And and I, I think that there had to be a bit of a mentality change there at Oklahoma in terms of what you're willing to go do, right? And, and your approaches to recruiting. And I don't know if Stoops wanted to do that and having a young, hungry guy ready to make his own mark there in Lincoln Riley, it has improved Oklahoma's recruiting, for sure. Um, that's There's no doubt. They, they have a really nice class here that they're, they're putting together. I mean, I don't know if they're going to move up a whole lot more, but they're in it for a couple kids who are are, are are pretty solid. I do like Jace McClellan. They're running back a whole lot out, out, out of the state. This is a, a pretty nice running back year, by the way. Um, okay. LSU could, could also pick up the, the best kid in the country, Zach Evans. They managed to get Reggie Grimes out, out of out of Alabama. He's he's an Alabama legacy, or excuse me, out of Tennessee, but he's a Bama legacy, and uh, he's a guy who can play early for them. Seth McGowan, uh, he has to leg press like a thousand pounds. This guy has like <laughs> the biggest thighs I've ever seen in terms of, like one of these Under Armour uh, workout gear stuff. He's he's a beast. I know he's a guy that Baylor wanted um, pretty badly, so they ended up winning that battle there to get him to Oklahoma. This is a nice class. This is a class that I don't know that it. it 
it does not help them really gain, I don't think, in terms of talent on the rest of the nation. But I definitely think it's kind of a class where they can kind of put their hand on the head of the rest of the Big 12, with the exception of Texas in terms of talent. Um, last, uh, we love to measure Auburn in all of the ways of craziness, the barometer of, of uh, instability. And yet, this year was not as dynamic and weird as the previous year in terms of the palace intrigue around Gus Malzahn, the athletic department and the boosters. It was up and down at times. Uh, there were people who were very frustrated, especially after the losses to Georgia and, and LSU. And we got that vibe again. And then they won the iron bowl and now they're a top 10 recruiting power again. And now we're in that phase where we swing the other way and we think, well, of course he's still there. He's a consistent guy. He can recruit it, you know, at, at the top caliber with everyone else. It's another top ten class. I mean, it, it's, for it's all hard fans, to argue. Yeah, like I'm sure they'll be disappointed because you have, you have three teams in your own division, <laughs> not not even conference, but own division who are t- are higher than you here. Plus, your annual opponent is Georgia, which is you know disappointing if, if you're an Auburn fan in terms of recruiting wise. It's another really good class, man. Kobe Hudson's an elite athlete at receiver. Tank Bigsby is a really tough runner who they got got out of Georgia. I I like Sykevius Walker, who they also went into Georgia and got a really nice-looking defensive end, and and he's a guy that I know a couple other staffs were were very high on as well. They they did a good job of scouting scouting these guys out, and I think this is a nice class for them. Uh, uh, granted, I'm saying the same thing for all these guys, but look, they're all right. top 10 classes. They're all sure. good classes. Yeah. Then it comes down to development. Then it comes down to situation, schedule, you know, all the little tiny margin stuff. But you don't get to be considered one of those teams that has a legitimate shot at a national title or competing for it unless you can do this one thing and do it better than 90% of the programs in college football. So accordingly, we have four SEC teams, four, excuse me, four SEC West teams that are in the top 10, which is insane. Um, it's not an insanity that's new. Okay, let me just ask you, if you're Joe Moorhead or Lane Kiffin, you know, Arkansas situation is so unique. I, I may not include them necessarily, but if you're one of those two coaches, you're you're at a school that wants to pay you to win. Okay. You're at a school that's willing to pay for resources and facilities and all that kind of stuff. And you're in a pretty talented football area, all things considered, right? If not the state of Mississippi on a given year, you're close to Memphis, you're close to new Orleans, you have Florida recruiters on your staff. And yet it just feels impossible. If you're at a, 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 it doesn't really matter, I guess, but a good, a bad and overperforming and underperforming Mississippi school, this is why, to me, in my opinion, this is what shapes those Mississippi schools' identities more than their dumb in-state nonsense. It's it's this reality. Exactly. I wrote about this a couple times recently in the Banner Society Read Option, and in my opinion, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, and Arkansas are one-contract jobs. Yeah, it's a very good way to put it. Given the current situation of the four beasts in your division, they're, they expect more than just to get to a bowl. I don't think they should given the, the, the talent you have to play on, on opposing rosters every year. And thus, I think that those guys will not last more than one contract. Do you think you think two of those three will get more than one contract? Uh, it would have uh, to break Pittman? just right. Yeah, I, it would have to break just right. I think the way that it could go is uh, Moorhead. Uh, actually, no, I, I'd have to take it back. What, what would have to happen now is I think you'd have to have Moorhead eaten alive by those other two. So Pittman shows enough progress within a two-year cycle getting close to that like Liberty Bowl status 
um, or Independence Bolt, whatever it is. The, they changed the affiliation so much on whatever that basement six win team is. And then simultaneously, you'd have to have Kiffin like, I mean, I think the first year, I think if, if Kiffin hits a seven and five season, which is possible maybe in 21, then he would get an extension. Right. I mean, think about what a seventy-five season is, though. That's oh, let's just let's just give them the zero and four against those four beasts in their division, unless they all of a sudden pull some kind of miracle. Oh no, you break that, right. Yeah, that's what it is. That's is one loss right. against everybody yeah. else. But it's also like the way they do that, and and I think this is where recruiting is a good example of like the, you're just tight margins. The way that one of those schools does that, Arkansas or Ole Miss or Mississippi State, for that matter. Uh, your permanent cross division, you beat them. And you're talking about Kentucky. You're talking about Vanderbilt. You're talking about um, Arkansas's permanent East cross division is Missouri. So you're you're talking about feeding off of teams that you you can you can be more talented than you have to. And this is Bud. This is probably what you're and I's favorite thing to talk about right now. You ha- I'm gonna say it real slow. You have to schedule to win your out of conference games. You mean like if you're Arkansas, don't schedule roadies at Notre Dame and Oklahoma State and <sighs> oh, Texas? Jeez, dude. Yeah, they're what screwed. They doing? Um, that brings me to another point. We can we can pick apart the West. We have all offseason. Uh Arkansas is 119th right now. I will say this. Of a, I asked Bud before we we recorded this, I said, pick out anything that surprises you, and we'll talk about it. Arkansas being 119th in the country is not as surprising to me as everything that's gone on. There's two things, actually. You, well, you can tell me which one you want to talk about first. There are two brands on here, and I'm just going to call them brands right now because I don't know if I want to necessarily ascribe a, a rank to them. I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Virginia Tech. Loved Beamer Ball. Obviously, I was a Mike Vick fan vis-a-vis the Falcons. Um, Virginia Tech is 82nd right now. That's not going to get it done, guys. Uh, Fuente, I ended up promoting from within with a defensive coordinator hire. And a lot of people said, well, it's consistency in staff. Well, that's kind of a BS answer when I think the reality is it's extremely hard to go out and get a top tier DC. If the entire market believes it's a one and done situation at the same time, the bigger talking point, at least nationally, bud is that USC is 80th. And you tell me if I'm wrong, let's start with USC, bud. They they don't have anyone to blame but themselves because of the way that they handled Helton being retained, right? Exactly right. I mean, like Clay Helton was on the proverbial hot seat for the entire year. It, it wasn't just like, hey, in the final month, okay, they're going to have to survive this. I mean, from August, from from June, there was like, okay, who's going to be the next coach at USC? Will it be Urban Meyer? It's hard to recruit when when nobody believes you're actually going to be there for the entire recruiting cycle. It's a lot easier if these things crop up in the final month and you end up, you know, weathering that storm. But to have to deal with this for basically the entire year was really tough. Now, I will note, look, both USC and Vatek, they, they only have 10 commitments and 12 commitments, respectively. So they'll go up in the rankings as, as they get more kids. Uh, VTech, though, no four stars. They've always done a good job of developing people and, and yada, 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 but that's a lot more concerning to me than anything that they're doing on the field. Like they're just not increasing the talent level there. All right. Let me, let me give you a comparison and it's, it's an uncomfortable one for me because in Tennessee, I see this like really painful toxic hope. (laughs) I don't know what else to call it. And I, I even, even by laughing at that, I sound snide. I'm not trying to be snide. But I've lived in the state for 13 years and I haven't seen a single good vol football season. Okay. 
or at least by their standards. I I know like, you know, Lane went to a bowl and Butch won, had two nine win seasons, but by their standards, they are Tennessee or actually they are Florida. They are, they are Alabama. They are Georgia. That's, that is the standard at Tennessee. In my opinion, walking backwards, you look at what happened at Tennessee and how they were able to achieve that success under Phil Fulmer, which we're still freaking talking about in 2019, bud. They are not a naturally talented area. If you don't know, Knoxville, the University of Tennessee, is in the far eastern side of the state. Okay, so yeah, they're drivable to Atlanta, but they're way up in the mountains, and you just can't really pull like four-star, big-bodied linemen and really athletic linebackers when you're in the middle of Appalachia. That's not how race and geography and demographics work. All right, is Virginia Tech going to be the next Tennessee? And that, and stay with me here. You tell me if I'm wrong. They had a system for a long time. They would go to D.C. They would go to the DMV area in general. So that's like D.C., Maryland, Virginia, that whole sort of blob around Baltimore, Washington area. Then obviously they would live in the Tidewater, Newport News, all that. And they would kind of come in and and exploit those areas that like at the time the ACC wasn't touching as much. And I think it was really before the Big Ten understood the power of the far East Coast, right? They were still hitting Chicago and Ohio, and now it feels like VTech, it's like if you were playing a game of risk, they've like lost all of their territories on the board. And I don't know if they can recover from this. I don't, you know, but I made fun of like, hey, Justin Fuente can't keep a quarterback. They can't develop. And, you know, maybe Bud Foster's over the hill. I think it just, maybe they just can't recruit anymore. I, I don't think you're wrong. I, I don't know if I'll go totally that far because you're always one good hire away. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that, that's what everybody always says. So you think someone could come in and redraw that map? I don't think you can get get VTech to what it was like a decade ago because redraw the map completely. No, could you do better than this? Yeah, I I definitely think so. Okay. Um, I think the the job profile though has and not not to kind of wade over into you, you and Richard's waters here, but I don't think the job is as attractive as it was a decade ago. I don't think. I mean, for lack of a better term, I don't think it's cool. I don't think it's cool to go there. I don't think their style of football has been cool. I think they've become, I think by their own hand and their own maybe laziness, they became obsolete or they're becoming obsolete. And that's, again, I'm not saying they can't win football games. I'm saying they can't win and compete to the level of which they did previously, which was to be considered on the national level. I I think maybe that time has passed. Um, And how much of that too was really related to them being in the Big East? Well, I think it's that, yeah, everything's situational. I mean, it is possible that we. I look back at Virginia Tech and I have the same short-sightedness that I think fans of Louisville had when they rehired Bobby Petrino, right? Big East to ACC is going to be different. Same, obvi- We're all sitting with sort of our arms crossed and laughing at what's going on at Rutgers, right? Same situation. My favorite is when people claim the success, like Rich Rodriguez talking about how successful he was at West Virginia – it's not the same job, you know, like you can't compare Rich Rodriguez to what Neil Brown's doing or even what Dana did. So it could be that, um, staying in the region here, uh, you've identified uh, Kentucky as having like, you know, not star studded by any stretch, but Mark Stoops continues to work that job to probably it's probably it's max capacity, I think. And he got another extension this year cause they went seven and five and so, so the contract automatically extends they, the greatest they have job goals. in college football right now by the way and they, they have reasonable goals they schedule to those goals they don't yep. they don't give him a bunch of nonsense games he can't win it's it's uh louisville and three automatic wins the and only they say, game, okay yep 
no, not, not to interrupt the only game. Cause I had, I had some people ask me this who were like kind of Kentucky area college football fans, but then also uh, Cincinnati boosters. The only thing I would do, because you already play Louisville every year and you live in the SEC, is I would, if you wanted to, do a one-off game at Paul Brown because they do like to, they like to go into Southern Ohio a lot. Do a one-off game against Cincinnati at Paul Brown. Otherwise, y'all do exactly what you're doing from here on out because it's it's obviously working. But how how like with Eddie Grant on the staff who looks like he's not going to get a head coaching job in his career? I think he'll finish his career at Kentucky, but. How good are they in Florida? Like they're they're one of those teams that sneaks in underneath the the upper class and and eats pretty well. Yeah, you know, they, they this year they don't have any any Florida kids. In, in previous years they they have had a lot of Florida kids. Now Joey Gatewood, your, your transfer uh, yeah. from Auburn, what was was a Florida kid? And look, they did ID a lot of Florida kids early and offered them early, and then the big schools snatched them up. But I, I think Kentucky has a pretty good scouting staff, and I I, I consistently kind of notice like who coaches are following on Twitter and, and that kind of thing and, and who they're extending offers to early. I, I like the job Kentucky does. I, I think yeah. John Young's a nice offensive tackle for them. Um, they they do a good job of, of building along the line of scrimmage, which is something that if you're one of these lower-level SEC jobs, you you have to do. And I, I think what they're doing a good job with that program in terms of just having their stuff together. Like, they understand who they are. They understand going to bowl games is a great way to fill the time between basketball seasons, man. It's much better than like, like a two and ten or three and nine type thing. Well, and Lexington is—it's it, a good life. It's a good football life. You're in the Southeastern Conference. You're going to be on national television. They have a beautiful football-only building. Their stadium is is nice. It, it's it's acceptable. I'm I'm not trying to short sight it at all. Like it, when they fill it up, it gets loud. So good for them. They know how to be good fans. Obviously, they they you know they're fans of like the premier brand of of a whole other sport. So. It's people laugh, but like that's the way that Stoops' contract is set up right now. It's the best job in America. Um, here's a surprise: uh, you are often the, the cold water. You are often sort of the hangman on mid-level, overly aspirational fan bases. But you like what's going on at Texas Tech. I do. Yeah. So obviously, I was on paternity leave for a little while, but I, I came back and I looked at some of my notes as to where some of these uncommitted kids ended up going, or to see like. Hey, did this school hold on to this kid or that kid because they had committed early? But then, um, you know, it may, maybe a lot of times they'll get flipped. I, they only have one four star in the class, but I, I like what what Texas, excuse me, I, I like what Texas Tech is doing. They they have some dudes who really flash for me, at some of the camp settings. I, I like receiver Jalen Polk a lot. I mean, he was. We were in that Nike Nike or Under Armour. They they were back to back days. I think it was. Under Armour, New Orleans, Houston, Nike, back to back. Jalen Polk gave all those DBs at, at the Houston Nike all, all they could handle. I mean, he was on par with everybody else. Now he did. I think he had a collarbone injury at, at the very end of his of his senior year, but he had a thousand yards receiving in, I want to say nine games that to, to, you know to back up his his really nice performance there in the camp setting. Uh, Loic Fuonji, who is freakishly athletic, and I just butchered his name. I apologize. Uh, he's another guy I, I really like in that class. I like their linebacker slash you know DN type dude. He's going to be a pass rusher for them. Uh, LB Moore. I, this is a pretty solid like like first class for for Matt Wells. I, I I think if you're a Texas Tech fan, you should be happy. I know that's kind of random because I don't live in Texas, but just looking through some of my notes, I'm like, damn, okay, they got that dude. They they held on to this guy. That's that's pretty solid. But Elliot, we will revisit all of this as we actually close out signing day in February. And then we can probably pick it back up in March and in April and in May because uh, we still have all the transport 
all the uh, transfer portal, excuse me, nonsense yet to come. Is that going to be bigger or or smaller, or do we do we have a way of prognosticating that? I think it would be bigger because three or four quarterbacks in the playoff are transfer kids. That's that's as salient a point as there is in a good place to end. But Elliot, I appreciate it, sir. I will see you on the next episode.